Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I'm thrilled that you have joined with us today because we are going to spend our time talking about sex and God and the church and religion. And if you're anything like me in my experience growing up, anytime sex was mentioned, whether it was in church or the classroom, there was just this collective palpable discomfort that everybody felt. And it was, uh, it was like sex was considered to be something bad and everyone kind of knew that. And so sex and any mention of it, especially if there was any kind of joking that hinted toward it, uh, it was taboo. It was off limits. We couldn't talk about it. And what I've learned over the years is that much of that kind of culture and the context that spawned the attitude that so many of us have experienced was incredibly unhealthy. And so today as a pastor, um, I I see this manifest itself in all of the questions that I'm bombarded with regarding sexuality. Um, Parents coming and asking, how do I talk to my kids about sex? And oftentimes they're asking the question when it's like their kids are grown and gone and it's too late. People who come and have the courage to confess um, porn addiction and sex addictions Uh, extramarital affairs, people wanting to know what's a proper sexual ethic, and the list goes on and on. And so today, we're going to talk and address the subject of sex and consider how we are wired as sexual beings and how this is actually a beautiful thing. So we have with us Dr. Tina Shermer-Sellers. Tina is an educator, sex therapist, family therapist, speaker, author, consultant, and thought leader. She serves as an associate professor of marriage and family therapy and director of medical family therapy at Seattle Pacific University. She's the author of Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, which is a wonderful book and resource that uh, for anyone to read. She also founded the Northwest Institute on Intimacy, whose mission is to provide training in a sex therapy and spiritual intimacy for psychotherapists and to provide a solid referral source to physicians, clergy, and community leaders, Tina, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Thank you. I am so pleased to be here. Yes. Last fall, uh, I sat with you. We were all, a bunch of us gathered together in Chicago. And I just remember asking you question after question after question regarding sex and ethics. And I found myself riveted um, (laughs) and so moved by the depth and not only the depth, but the compassion that you bring to this conversation. So let's jump in. Um, just tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, what led you to um, enter this field of work and, and serve in this this way. Yeah. You know, a lot of people ask me that question, uh, and I think it's because I'm an anomaly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, as a psychotherapist, family therapist, medical family therapist, and then add to that sex therapist, um, and then Christian on top of that, right? I think I'm probably the only one in the country. I don't know. There's just not very many of us out there that hold sort of all of those different really um, points of view and training and research, et cetera. I straddle so many different fields and domains, and I and I speak in all of those as well. Um, uh, it it is a little bit odd. Um, I ended there because ended up there because I had interests in families. I started out as a junior high and high school teacher, and I taught sexuality as one of my courses. Um, Working with junior high kids led me into 
studying family therapy because I saw what my kids were going through in their families and I saw how that was interrupting their ability to learn. That mm. took me to grad school to become a family therapist. After getting out of grad school, I was actually asked to teach in the graduate program that I had just graduated from. And one of the courses that I was asked to teach was the human sexuality course, which is a required course for therapists by the state of Washington. And there are, I would say most states, certainly not all, will ask therapists to take one course in human sexuality, which is not enough. That is not enough, one course, because our country does not have comprehensive sex education, probably 90% maybe more of people grow up in silent or silent and shaming homes. So that means all of your therapists and all your doctors are not comfortable with sexuality. So I teach that one course at Seattle Pacific University. So I began teaching that course. And in about the year 2000, so I started teaching that course in 1991, I believe. Mm. In the year 2000, I noticed, because I have my students write their sexual autobiography in that course, um, and people will go, oh my gosh, I can't imagine having to do that, having to write that. But I, I have my students write that for a couple of reasons. One of them is you really want a therapist who understands their story, Hmm. from multiple angles because you want a therapist is only ever as good as they know what their own story is where they begin and end and their client begins and ends and so from many different uh, classes in our program the students will be asked to write their story from a different angle like your family of origin or um, your illness story or whatever there's different angles. So our sexual story in particular is a story that is not narrated, if you will, within Mm -hmm. us. Because if you have a silent home and you're not free to talk openly about sexuality, then you remember perhaps getting in trouble at five or six or maybe younger. And you might remember that first crush or that first kiss or whatever. You have these incidents, but they're not storied, right? It's not in a whole narrative. So I give the students 60 or 70 questions and I ask them to go back two or three generations and I have them look at sex and gender, action, feeling, desire, all kinds of things. And I walk them through their life, examining, thinking about what was my experience? What were the ideas that came down? And as they do that, They don't answer the questions one by one. They sort of just think it through, but move through chronologically. They end up with a fully formed narrative. And as they do that, they learn about, oh, I not only experienced some things, but it was informed by a family of origin experience that traveled down from great-grandparents to grandparents to parents to me. And... It, it didn't just come out of the ether. And um, so this, I often have students, you know, they've written um, well over 300 papers in their graduate training. They'll say to me, of all the papers that I wrote, and I did not want to write one more, they'll say, um, this was by far the most important paper that I wrote. I learned so much wow. um, about myself and this sexual legacy. And I learned what I do want to pass forward and what I do not want to pass forward. And that was critically important to me. Also, it's made me a much better therapist and much more comfortable with sexuality, but there's still so much more to learn, right? right? 
So around the year 2000, what I noticed in reading these sexual autobiographies, I've read well over 500 in my career, is there was a dramatic increase in sexual shame. And how that showed up was sexual just humiliation, disgust about their bodies, um, just self-hatred about what they thought and felt and desired and did and did not do as they were growing up. Even though what they were describing was absolutely, nothing had changed. It was not different. They were not thinking and feeling and doing or not doing anything different than kids before them. But how they felt about it was so dramatically different. And I thought, what, what's happened in their life and environment that would cause them to hate themselves so much and not to know that this is normal. Like clearly they weren't being talked to right. and they were not talking to each other. Yeah. You know? And um and then and there was just a lot more sexual compulsion happening too. Like they really felt bad and the shame was going underground and then they were acting on that shame and then feeling more awful about themselves and yeah, then thought it was shame's getting into that circle, isn't it? Right. Yep. Yeah, that cycle will get into place. <clears throat> So um, I, for a couple of years, I just didn't know what I was seeing. And then eventually I began asking more questions. And what I learned was I was hitting the first wave of kids, some from, many from religious backgrounds who had grown up through the purity movement, which started in 1992 or so. Oh, yes. And then many of the kids too, by by the early 90s, we had been pumping Billions of dollars in abstinence-only education. That started in 81. And, and for for those who aren't aware of the purity movement, can you give us like a 10-second background right. on what that is? Yeah. So in the early 80s, we had a, a sociopolitical movement that merged the religious right and the moral majority, which made our sociopolitics very, very conservative. As that movement grew... In the early 90s, there was a program that started out of the Southern Baptist Church that had this um, pledge. This was a big campaign, huge campaign, Mm -hmm. and it, it spread like wildfire across the United States. So in this campaign was this idea that you would sign this pledge card, and on this pledge card, you would pledge to keep yourself pure in body, mind, and heart. So that's body, what you did, mind, what you felt, or -hmm. what you thought, and heart, what you felt. Until the day of biblical marriage. Right. So you would sign a card. Your parents would often sign a card too, and you would wear a purity ring. And this was... Like, th- there was a level to which this was pushed onto people. This yes. wasn't this kids was... waking up and being compelled mm-hmm. by the spirit. Oh, no, right? no, <laughs> no, no, uh-uh. And it was in youth groups. There mm-hmm. were rallies. Um, I think it yeah, was, was 1994. Was yeah, yep. 1994, there was a rally along the Capitol Mall in Washington, D.C., yep. where like 4,000 little pledge cards were stuck in the Capitol Mall. There's a picture that's just compelling when you see these kids placing these cards along the entire Capitol Mall. I remember that. I was a senior in high school. Mm -hmm. That's when I graduated high school, 1994. Go Mustangs. Yeah. Uh, And um, then there were purity balls that happened and many, many other things. And they began talking about these ideas with 10-year-olds. 
So developmentally, a 10, 11, 12-year-old is in a place in their life where they want nothing more than to please their parent, to please yep. their God. Yeah. You know, they are, are very rooted still within their home. They haven't begun developmentally to begin to look outside and become independent, right? Those independent ideas haven't begun to emerge. But by the time they're 13, 14, 15, 16, they've begun to attach to to their peer group and look outside of their family home, which is very normal because they're now spending time moving from 13 to 18 mm -hmm. to learn how to become independent. Well, these ideas by that point have cemented in that I am not to feel any sexual desire. I'm not to want any sexual desire. I'm not to think about anything sexual yeah. and I'm not to do anything sexual either with myself or anyone else. And so as those things naturally emerge, because God designed us that way, they would determine within themselves that they were perverted. So this was happening as they were being given abstinence-only education, which we now know, because research has been done, that 80% of that information was actually false wow. and often very frightening 80%, that's in the public schools. So not just what was happening at churches, but also in the public schools. So this was across the United States. Taxpayer money was going into abstinence-only education, and then what they were also getting in their churches for those kids that were involved in youth groups, etc. And so this just perpetuates the "I'm bad, mm -hmm. something is wrong with me." Mm -hmm. In addition to my body's dangerous, women yeah. basically felt like their bodies were dangerous. Men were told that they were animals and couldn't control themselves. Yeah, and that w we would hear things like "women, women are dangerous," um, which. It creates in the psyche this really weird feeling of like, oh, got to be careful with that. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm listening to it, thinking about the, a lot of the groups that were doing this purity movement um, were the same ones saying things like, I grew up hearing God hates you mm. um, and God can't stand to look at you unless you're covered under the blood of Christ. And so the compounding nature of it, mm -hmm. if sex is the worst thing, and by the way, I love the drilling in the background. So for those of you who are wondering if this is a bad connection, it's just drilling. Um, but yeah, the, the, the deep connection between God hates me and I'm bad. I, I just, that's where, as I started to become familiar with your work, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so needed. So needed. <sighs> and, and then it becomes ironic and tragic when you also get message like, oh, but when you get married... If yes. you've remained pure, yep. it's going to be lovely and beautiful and perfect. And yet, how? How? When I've made everything about my body and its natural tendencies bad and wrong and evil, yes. is that going to all switch? And, and I've been giving messages that... Um, boys have been getting messages like, well, it, it's, it's all that now, but when you get married, she's for you. Yeah. She's entirely for you. And she's been getting messages that you are, as a woman, entirely for him. You're not for yourself. Pleasure's right. not for you. You got to turn it over to him. So we have set them up for a terrible sex life. Mm -hmm. She, Her body has been dangerous for her. It's It's been, he's going to be a wild animal. She's scared of everything about her body, how she dresses, what she looks like, what if 
gosh, if he looks upon this, she's not going to be able to control him either. Yeah. You know, right? And then it's like, it's all frightening. Yes. And it's terrible from the get-go for so many people. Now, obviously, these are sweeping generalizations. There are some people that did not get it like this, hook, line, and sinker. And for those, I'm so, so grateful. But for many, 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 by the time they did get married, they were suffering from so much sexual dysfunction, so much emotional and physical pain. And what I was hearing were symptoms that were exactly like somebody who had been sexually abused as a child. Oh, my goodness. And I knew the church had no idea that that's, in fact, what it was participating in, was hurting their sexual development so much by, by this level of sexual shame that it matched the sexual shame and sexual trauma of somebody who had been sexually abused as a child. Oh, my goodness. But this was exactly what I was seeing across the board for so, so many people. Yeah, and I went to uh, my undergraduate, I went to a Christian university. And what I described at the beginning of when sex comes up, that there's this awkwardness, that was almost everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what you're describing, and I would assume for many of the listeners, this, we're, we're like going, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. That's mm-hmm. it. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and you said something earlier about in the sexual biography that you have your students write for them to go back three generations. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering how, how far back, like are, when they're talking about generations before them, are you seeing this level of shame? Is it go back that far? No. Or is this it, something newer? This is something newer. So when shame, shame goes back, sexual shame goes back, but not at this level. Okay. So, so this, uh, conservative movement that started in the early 80s and then grew in momentum was the what I would call the most recent ascetic movement of the Christian church and it was incredibly dramatic and we when you lift up to the 30,000 foot level and you look at the movement of Christianity across the last 2500 years or whatever you will see that there have been ascetic movements that have happened And when you look underneath those ascetic movements, what you will see is something was happening in culture. Hmm. There was either a plague or there was an economic downturn or there was something that then the political powers that be, those that had power and control, used the fear that was happening in culture to grab power. And what was happening in the early 80s was we had a reaction to second wave feminism We had a reaction to the economic downturn, and then by mid-80s, we had a reaction to HIV. Bingo. Yes. And you look at what was happening when the merging of, if you know your history, the merging of the religious right and um, moral majority, there was a movement in the late 70s where um, they had been, the Christians, the moral majority, or the religious right, had been really working on segregation like at Bob Jones University. Mm -hmm. And then that got shut down by the government. Like, no, you cannot do, even the Christian churches or the Christian universities cannot do segregation anymore. And so there was literally a meeting where they got together and said, we have to find another issue that we can rally all the evangelicals, all the conservatives around, because they are our voting base. Because we have to be able to say, you know, you 
you have the same values as this religious right and moral majority, and we need your vote. Right? This was the Jerry Falwell, the beginning of the whole Jerry Falwell and the Frank oh, yeah. Schaefer, right? If you read uh, Francis Schaefer's book, Sex, God, and the um, Sex, God, Sex, God, and Me, no. Anyway, it's, just, it's a title very similar to mine. Um, sex, Ma, uh, anyway. Um, he explains this entire history, and it's fascinating. You will see that what ended up happening is there was a meeting, and in that meeting, they decided that abortion was going to be their issue. Right. But from 19, up to 1977, 78, the, first, the, Christi- the evangelicals were not political, and second, they were very pro-family and pro the children that were born. We needed to be responsible to the families of the children that were born. And people remembered and knew people that had suffered from illegal abortions. And they were very pro taking care of the mothers. Hmm. And I remember because I, I was in college. I graduated. I was in college from 78 to 82. And I re- was a Christian. And I remember that we were very much about... If, if an abortion needs to happen, let's make sure that it's legal and let's take care of the children that are born. We have far too many children that are not being taken care of, hmm. you know? And, and so I was so shocked later when all of a sudden people were like, well, no, it's always been this way. And I'm like, no, no, it has not always been this way. Right. So all of that to say that the way that, that Christianity was in relationship to sexuality in the 60s and the 70s was we had, it's, again, it was sociopolitically informed, we had much more sex education in schools. We had um, much more of an open conversation around sexuality that was happening in culture and in the church. It was just more open. Now, it was still, don't have sex until you get married, but no one was in your business. So right. it was much more like Catholicism, that conversation mm-hmm. where there was an understanding you had, okay, this is what our agreement is, right? But the underlying message was, however... If you're older and you fall in love with somebody and you're both really, really good to each other, I'm going to look the other way. Yeah. But you're, you're going to make smart decisions, right? And you are going to use birth control. So this was the underlying message that was there. And so that's kind of how it was during those years anyway. And I, so there was this, um, nobody in your business, a lot, yeah. a lot of shame yeah. was there. Um, and so you see this movement of conservative closeness, um, you know, and then sort of a loosening and then a tightness and a loosening that happened throughout history. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. So this is something that what you're dealing with right now, this is a newer, a newer phenomenon. Aesthetic movement. Yes. And we're still at a place where we're not, we're not talking about a whole lot. And I bring that up because you said recently you talked about the five uh, elements, spaces that which we exist. Right, exactly. And like I believe God created us bio, psycho, social, spiritual, sexual. In other words, we have a biology, a psychology, we have an emotionality, we have a spirituality, and we have a sexuality. And we all live in those domains. We experience our life in those domains. Usually most of us do. Now, there are some people that are asexual that have never really had an experience of a sexual desire that's a small a small number of people, mm-hmm. but there are those. But for the most part, most people experience their life in those domains, right? And so we're ignoring 20%. Yes, exactly. Of, of so life. most therapists of all ilk, counselors, marriage and family therapists, 
psychiatrists, clinical psychologists are not trained in sexuality, except for maybe a class, and are not trained in spirituality, so the intersection. So where spirituality informs people's lives, right, and how that might be affecting how they're living, where they might want to enter into a conversation with their therapist or even their uh, physician or you know, uh, with the clergy, they want to maybe talk about sexuality and the clergy's not had any training at all around sexuality or. Yeah. I told you last night that in seminary, not only was it not talked about, but at, in our master's program, we had to take one mental health class mm-hmm. and that was it. And it was psychology 101. Right. I mean, I learned the same thing while watching what about Bob? So <laughs> that, okay. So you're now, you've given your life to this. Right. Um, it it, it trained, changed the trajectory of my career. My career prior to this had been a lot in medicine and in, in, in integrated medicine, a lot in family therapy. And I was so compelled by the pain and suffering of young people and how it affected their ability to give and receive love, mm. which is, I think, the core really of our happiness is our ability to give and receive love. Working in medicine, I worked in oncology for years. And in oncology, I was at some people's deathbed. Hmm. And what you learn, the gift of cancer, the gift of being at people's deathbed, is you find out the most important thing is people's relationships, how they gave and received love. That's all that matters. And so learning that gift from the patients that I worked with and now seeing how the church had hurt people at that place because shame causes people to believe they are unworthy of love and belonging, Yes, right? And the only thing that heals that is love, but they don't believe that they deserve love and belonging. And so they put up a mask Mm -hmm. And then they think, well, people just love the mask. If they knew who was really underneath it, they couldn't possibly love that. And so they don't let the love in to be healed. Yes. Right? Yes. So it's heartbreaking. And so I thought, okay, I I, I will still sort of do, I mean, I do my job around medicine, but I went back to school. I got my PhD in clinical sexology. I started an institute to train um, clinicians around sexuality. And then I I did research on this book and I said, did the church ever get sexuality right? No, it didn't in in Christianity. Did we ever develop a Christian sexual ethic? No, on Jesus' ministry, on love and justice and grace? No. Okay, well, what would it look like? I figured it out. I wrote it out. I went back into Jewish history. I said, did we ever get it right on the Abrahamic line? We did. Oh my gosh, look at these stories. Oh my gosh, I resurrected them. I put them in the bu- in the book. I had been working with people all of these years. I developed a evidence-based model for how you heal sexual shame because you've got to be able to heal it. And yes. then I put in touch and non-touch practices. So this is what you can do both with yourself and claiming your own sexuality and with a partner if you're with a partner, no matter what configuration your relationship might be in, to integrate intimate touch that brings connection and pleasure. Because that's what sexuality is about, connection and pleasure. It's not about different behaviors. And an important distinction you make in the book is there are some people who can hear intimate touch and be like, whoa, wait a second, how far is too far? Like, And you make the distinction, hang on, the the sexual touch, 
That's that's everything from holding hands mm-hmm. to intercourse. Mm-hmm. It's not about behaviors. It's about honor. Yes. It's about honoring. Yep. It needs to serve love. And that's what modulates what you do. Yes. If it serves love and it serves justice, it will boundary what you do. Yep. Yep. So that requires communication, talking. That requires all kinds of things. And it goes beyond arbitrary rules. Yes. To now you have a heart and an ethic. You have, you have something driving this yeah, more absolutely. than just yeah. do's and don'ts. Right. I, I often ask the question to people who are sexually active and... Uh, and often the people who are having the worst sex and the most difficulty with all of this are heterosexuals. And I'll say, have you ever had um, intercourse that was bad? And then they kind of, you know, their eyes go each direction and then they say, yes. And I said, okay, then it's not about intercourse. This is about connection and pleasure and making sure that it serves love, whatever it is that you're doing. And so you talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. And you decide, what do we want to do in this next hour or whatever that is going to be connecting and pleasurable for you and connecting and pleasurable for me, given where we are and how much energy we have and whatever, yeah. today, right now, yep. where our relationship is, whatever. And that's how you make sure that your sexual life serves what God intended it to be, which is something that nourishes you and your relationship over time, which was part of what the, the, the Jewish stuff that I found showed it was to bond you over your lifespan until you weren't breathing anymore. Yeah. Right. And you mentioned this, this is going back a bit. You mentioned in the book, a bit about American consumerism. Mm-hmm. And then you quoted Wendell Berry, mm-hmm. which if you've not ever read Wendell Berry, that's your next step. Go mm-hmm. buy it. Get, just get online and start reading his essays. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you talk a bit about that, what, what you said about consumerism and sexual ethics and culture? Yeah. So I borrowed a lot of these ideas from William Doherty, who wrote a book called Take Back Your Marriage. And Bill is one of my mentors and Mm. somebody that I just deeply respect and adore. Um, He also wrote another book called Take Back Your Kids, which is about how we just allow our children often to become so busy that we fail to develop deep and meaningful relationships with them too. But he talks about how our consumer thinking, which we apply to, we, we, we are in consumer thinking so much of the day, you know, like we're holding our phone in our hand and we're like, oh, I don't know if this is as good as that new iPhone that's coming out. Yeah, man, those pictures are so great. And we see five thousand corporate logos a day on average. Right. Yeah, inundated. Yeah, and we're and it's always about meeting our needs, Mm -hmm. meeting our needs, meeting our needs, meeting our needs. I mean, you know, sit down on the toilet. Is this toilet paper meeting my needs? You know, I mean, it's like really, like all the time. Is this meeting my needs? Is this meeting my needs? Is this meeting my needs? And then we apply that to our partner. Are you meeting my needs? So I'm thinking all the time about what you're giving me. It's all about me. Rather than this relationship isn't about that. This relationship is a spiritual journey that we're on. And I am called into the art of loving. And I learn about the art of loving, not when it's easy, 
when it's easy, that's our deep breath. That's mm-hmm. my deep breath. That's the vacation. That's when it's fun. Yeah. I learn about the art of loving when you piss me off and have touched some trigger in me that's usually about shame. Mm-hmm. And I want to blame you for making me feel bad. And I'm going to make it all about you. But instead of doing that, I stop myself. I take a deep breath. I notice that. And I go, oh, yeah, that's, that's that part of me that feels unworthy that I got from my mom or whatever my trigger is. And I take a deep breath and I think to myself, this is my opportunity to learn how to love better. Hmm. And instead of blaming you, because it's really my stuff. Right. I just nod and say, I'm not really sure why you said that to me. It would really help if you could say that and more kindly. Yes. And then I turn around and just deal with the fact that, yeah, that's my tender spot. Yeah. And this is a really important distinction. One of the things that I often see is someone will say, when you do that, it triggers me. And the expectation is you need to fix the way you exist in this world. And these aren't triggering things like where you're telling someone to go scratch. Like these are just kind of more idiosyncratic behaviors. And the expectation is that I have to stop behaving that way to instead of, no, I want to invite you to begin doing the hard work of healing. Mm -hmm. Right. I I believe, and and this is one of those things that is paradoxically so simple and yet so hard. Mm -hmm. I believe marriage itself is really about learning the art of loving. That's what it is. And I believe parenting is that as well. Mm-hmm. And that I believe the core call on our life is to learn the art of loving. That's our human call. And that the core, that our core nature is that we are beloved. And that that's the journey that we're on is to mm. try to metabolize that, that we are beloved, not for what we do, not for what we say, not for what we've accomplished, not for how skinny we are or whatever, but because God calls us beloved, mm-hmm. called us beloved before we were born. And that—that that is our core nature. We came into the world that way. We're going to leave that way simply because God calls us beloved. So that's our core nature. That is what we are learning to metabolize. And the more I can metabolize that... The more my shame goes away, the less reactive I am, the less triggered I am, the more I let you just be you. But if you're being a jerk, I can say, you know, baby, I would really like it if you didn't speak to me that way. Yeah. But I'm not triggered now when you say that because I'm believing I'm beloved and I'm just seeing you're being a jerk. Yep. Right? Yep. And I'm practicing the art of love. Yeah. Which is my call. Exactly. I can't remember where I heard this. It was it's not original to me, but somebody pointed out that when Jesus is baptized and comes up out of the water and he hears, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, that Jesus hadn't done anything yet. No water to wine, no no brilliant arguments against the Pharisees and the religious leaders, no parables, no healings, mm-hmm. nothing. And the the importance of that struck me so deeply. That um, and so, if you're listening and you're resonating with this, this you struggle to think you're worth loving. One of my mantras that I use during centering prayer is on the inhale, it's "I am your beloved son," or it, depending on who you are, "I am your beloved daughter," and on the exhale, 
with me you are well pleased. Because if we are the body of Christ, if we are his brothers and sisters, if everything that was his is ours, that's exactly what you're saying. Absolutely. And it's been, uh, I started doing that, goodness, probably seven or eight years ago. And that constant reminder, there's days where I still do it. And I'm like, I do not believe this. (laughs) But it's exactly it. Absolutely. It's so deeply healing. Yes. 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 And it is centering, you know? It is absolutely centering. And so... When we do that, we orient ourselves in our relationship with our partner and in our relationship with our children away from consumerist thinking Mm -hmm. and back into the call of this purpose of relationship, which isn't it interesting, so many of us choose long-term relationships, which is one of the very hardest things we can ever do in our human experience, but somehow... We all keep walking down the aisle. Yeah. I think it's beautiful, amazing, and I don't understand it. Yeah. Right? So in your in your, in your practice, you've walked with countless number of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all sorts of stories, heartbreaking mm-hmm. and beautiful in your book. Um, what, how, how have you walked with people through this, from, from shame to, let's say, freedom, liberation, from shame to love? Mm-hmm. Uh, and believing mm-hmm. that they're worth loving and are loved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let me first read um, the definition of sexual shame, just to okay, give us yeah. a context. This uh, We didn't have an operational, a researched operational definition of sexual shame until this last May, believe it or not. Really? Now, I had seen it in people's lives. I had been yeah. writing about it. But we finally had a PhD student actually say, I'm going to study this and come up with an operational definition. It was so helpful to actually see it in black and white. So I I think your listeners could benefit from hearing it. Yeah. Um, And then we can talk about how the healing part goes. So this this is the definition. Sexual shame is a visceral feeling, that means in your body, a visceral feeling of humiliation and disgust toward one's own body and identity as a sexual being and a belief of being abnormal and inferior. This feeling can be internalized, but also manifests in interpersonal relationships, having a negative impact on trust, communication, and physical and emotional intimacy. In other words, every aspect of the human experience. Sexual shame develops across the lifespan in interactions with interpersonal relationship, one's culture and society, and subsequent critical self-appraisal, which is a continuous feedback loop. In other words, it's what I think about myself, and then it's what happens between you and I. Mm-hmm. And then what happens between you and I, because I'm certain that it's negative, right? That's all I'm going to hear. Yeah. I'm then going to internalize that into my critic. Yeah. And that's going to go round. And then it's going to come back out between you and I again. So it just repeats into this more insidious internal, external critic, hmm. which is what people describe. Furthermore, sexual shame reflects a vulnerability and a distrust of one's ability to make decisions related to safety and autonomy in sexual relationships. And how that shows up is, this especially shows up with women, when they go out into the world, they can, they can have 
strong voice, strong decisions in every other aspect of their life. But when they get ready to go out into the world as a single woman, they'll put down three shots, four shots, because they don't know that they have the right to protect themselves out there. So at least if they're drunk and something happens with a guy, they can use that as an excuse mm. because they they literally don't know how to protect themselves, that they have the right to protect themselves, that they'll be listened to. And this is in part, sexual assault is coming at them all the time. Yes. And so it's this decision of, I have to stay home and not ever do anything with my friends out there, or I have to deal with what is going to come at me. Do I have the right to stop it? Can I stop it? Right? It's this whole horrible thing that's happening. And you don't have to have had a religious background. In fact, most of the people that were interviewed for this study were not from a religious background. Right? Wow. Yeah. So sexual shame is rampant in our culture. It's just horrible. So so the healing of the process is really it's it's I think of it as a uh a fourfold process. And mm-hmm. this is part of the, what I call he, um, healing the mess. And, and, and I broke down mess as the model for erasing sexual shame. The, <laughs> the mess. And um, it's frame, name, claim, and aim. So frame is building for yourself a scaffolding of sexual information, of education, because you never got that. It's like you first can't speak without the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You need the vocabulary. You need the scaffolding, the education. Mm-hmm. So there are basic books that you need to sort of read about the human body and how it works and how it functions and how it develops across time. And it's remarkable and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then you need to discover your own body and your own arousal cycle and how it works. And then that's the name part, right? And then... And then, or excuse me, that's the frame part. The name part is you need to find safe people or at least one safe person to start telling your story to. Mm. Shame grows in secrecy. Yes. Shame begins to melt in the company of a compassionate, empathic other. And so many people have lived sexual shame. Mm -hmm. And so I find when people are together and they hear each other's stories, it's like tears start running down their face. They're like, me too, me too, me too, right? So part of how I wrote the book, even though it's written often to, it's written to professionals too, I wrote it with so many stories so people could actually read it together Hmm. and sort of find a way to like read a chapter or part of a chapter and then talk together about how how did I experience this? How did you experience it? Right. Or what are you resonating with or not resonating with? So that the story, their story, begins to find a place, yep. right? And then what happens is this, the shame begins to melt through that process too. And then claim is begin to claim back your body from culture yeah, as something good and wonderful and amazing, right? Imagine yourself on your deathbed. You know, because you're going to want another birthday, another Christmas, another day, whatever. And you're going to want to say, I don't care what shape this is in. This is good. This is good and wonderful. And it's meant to be different than each Mm -hmm. other. Like it's meant to have whatever heritage you have, whatever shape it comes in. It's meant to have that. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. I mean, we are learning that metabolism is not the same for each person, that people from certain heritages have certain body types, that 
whatever, you know, we are what we are and it's all beautiful. It's all wonderful. And if you travel to European countries, you'll find people on the beaches with all of their different body types and all their different ages. And they're all like, yep, that's my body. Yep. That's my body. You know, they're, they're all okay. And we don't know how to do that here in America, but Mm. As people begin claiming their bodies side by side with each other and be like, I'm, I'm going to learn to be okay with this, it, there's a, so much power that can happen there. Yeah. Um, so that's the claim. So frame, name, claim. And then as you're doing that, what, you're, what you'll find that you're beginning to do, the aim part, is you're beginning to write a new sexual legacy that you can pass on to anybody who's younger than you. You can begin to ask yourself the question, what story do I wish I had gotten? What story do I want to pass down about how wonderful bodies are, how wonderful sexual desire is, um, how wonderful sexual thoughts are, how wonderful the process of development is? How can I begin to claim a sexual legacy that is beautiful? You know, mm. that is honoring, that is celebratory. And as you're doing all four of those things, um, you can begin to, to heal. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people, they work, they need to work with a professional to help them on that process. And I, yeah. that's part of why we have the Institute. And, you know, we have referrals out to people, you know, about how do you find somebody in your area to work with. And so you're talking about the sexual legacy which I imagine for anyone who has kids, it's immediately, oh, I wish I could do that. And so one of the most common questions I get from parents in our congregation is, how do I talk to my kids about sex? And what this is um, in the book as well, but you said, it's not, oh, it's not a conversation. Like, don't have the talk. And you gave a number of how many times should you talk to your kids? Right. I mean, the the phrase I often use is have 100 one-minute conversations. <laughs> but actually, talks. it's more than that. Yes. Have 1,000 one-minute conversations, you know? And <clears throat> it really needs to be woven in to your life. You know, it's like how many times do you want to talk about health with your mm-hmm. children or nutrition with your children, right? It's like, well, we're talking about it all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk, you're going to talk about it different when they're three and when they're four and they're five and they're seven and they're 10, right? Because it's, you just, it's different. It's the same with sexuality and relationships and gender and power, Mm -hmm. right? All of it. Because different things are coming up at different ages and there's just different ways to talk about it. Um, I'm often recommending for parents, um, there's a, uh, author who has children's, um, sexual development books named Robbie Harris, R-O-B-I-E, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. And she has three books, one's for four to seven, one's like seven to 10, and one's 10 and up. And you can find them on Amazon. And I'm always saying, you got kids in these different age brackets, grab the book, throw it on your coffee table right in the middle of everything. The pictures are hilarious. Everything's age appropriate. Let them pick them up. Or pick it, the minute it comes, sit down and read it for once and read it just as long as they're interested. If they get up and walk away, let them walk away. Yeah. You know, let it be like sound bite, you know, conversations. But they will get engaged at different points. And then you just let it happen naturally along the way. And if you want a good book around safe touch, 
There's a book called A Very Touching Book by Jan Hindman, and that's about safe touch, um, good touch, bad touch, and secret touch. And mm. that will teach them about, you know, that kind of thing without yeah. scaring them. It totally makes sense to the six-year-old and seven-year-old. And those books, even just on their own, will help you, give you the language, give you a place to go. Um, that's wonderful. In the book, one of the things that I found in doing my study into Hebrew writing, Hebrew mystic writing, is I found a thing called the Vow of Ona. And the Vow of Ona is um, a Hebrew um, idea. It's a vow that that men often take as they get married. And it has all of these ideas. They're actually like eight or so different ideas. And these ideas you can run your marriage by, you can run your dating life by, um, you can run, yeah, I mean, you can parent by them. Hmm. And they're thousands of years old and they're all sex positive. Hmm. So I'm often saying to parents, you know, like, go get the book and read The Vow of Ona and make a poster in your house and follow these because you can you can adapt the idea to the three-year-old, to the five-year-old, to the seven-year-old, to the ten-year-old, you know, and, um, and there's things like, you know, I mean, all forms of sexual touch are rec- recognized and valued. And so you're helping the little one understand how to be respectful in touch, what kind of touch is appropriate and yeah. respectful and what kind of touch isn't. And you're helping them understand as they get older. Um, the purpose of all sexual touch is to reinforce the sexual bond over the lifespan. So that means one thing to the adult coupled person, right? But it means something different to the child. Like all touch should reinforce that friendship. It should be respectful. It should be honoring. It shouldn't hurt. It should be asked for, right? It yeah. should have consent involved, yeah. right? And so there's all kinds of things that are in in this kind of, um, in these ideas that are, are, that are amazing. Um, yeah, that are totally adaptable. And, and this is in... Your book, God, Sex, and the Conservative Church. Yeah, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy. And so if you haven't picked up the hint, we talk about our next step a lot on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Sincerely, buy two copies and then read it with your partner, read it with a friend, read it with yeah. your kids. Yeah, And the um, only thing I'll say is the book was published by an academic publisher, so it's m- a little more expensive than the average yeah. book, um, which I, I'm always apologizing for. Um, <laughs> but... Um, but it's so packed with so many good things that you'll find yourself re- reading it more than once and referring to it for years. Yes. So I do think it's, even though I apologize, I do think it's worth the the book. Yes. The content uh, and the way it's laid out and the stories. It's it's academic, but don't let that scare you yeah. away if you're listening because it's really accessible. Very, yeah. Um, which I really liked. Um, and you have m- more resources than the book. Yeah, I do. So I have um, a website that's a community-built website called thankgodforsex.org. That website has um, videos on it of different people, most of whom are Christians who grew up in homes that didn't manage sexuality well, who are telling their stories about how, how it was for them when they were growing up, how they've been learning to heal their story, and how they've been getting to a place to thank God for sex how they wished it was and what they hope 
for the next yeah. generation. And so their stories are wonderful because what I found is most people weren't talking and they wanted to go to a place where they could hear other people's stories. And so I don't know, there's 25 or 30 on there. They're lovely. It also has podcasts on sexual shame, on adult sex ed. You can mm. go there and learn about sex ed. Um, uh, just different kinds of uh, community conversations we've actually had at a local pub that we taped. And um, so it's got really fun stuff on there. So that's that's out there. Um, my website, which has a ton of podcasts and workshops that I've done at churches and stuff, all out there for free, um, called it's tinashermersellers.com. So T-I-N-A-S-C-H-E-R-M-E-R-S-E-L-L-E-R-S. Com. I'm know, just going to put a, I'm going to, I'll put a link in yeah, there. Okay. <laughs> Good. That's much better. Um, anyway, ton of stuff on that for people. Right now, the resource page is a little messed up because Amazon had some faux pas that happened or something. Okay. Anyway, but we'll get that fixed. But otherwise, there's just a ton, a ton of stuff there. So you're welcome to have. And then the institute website is nwioi.com. That's Northwest Institute on Intimacy. I think you can get their Institute on Intimacy as well. Um, and um, we do run retreats for, yes, um, yeah, intimacy retreats for heterosexual couples at this point. Um, and um, that's not to marginalize anybody. Honestly, um, heterosexual couples are, um, we have found at this point, um, we'll, we'll get to uh, serving other populations, but heterosexual couples really are the ones whose sex lives are the worst. And that's been backed up by research um, for all kinds of reasons, and the church being one of them. <laughs> um, and um, we run those actually in Denver and in Seattle right now. And our next one in Denver will be in September. And those are remarkable in um, healing relationships, teaching relationships about what they need, about how to do um, intimacy, really helping people understand what they got and what they didn't get. And they're phenomenal. We've been running them for about eight years now. And yeah. you can read the reviews on the website. Um, uh, yeah. And then I think Twitter is Tina S. Sellers. Um, and and you, yeah. you speak as well. Like you'll mm -hmm. you travel quite a bit. Right. So yeah. how do people get in touch with you if they would like you to come speak at you can get me on my website. Yeah. Okay, you perfect. Can, yeah, get me on my website. And yeah, I love coming to speak at churches and talking to people about all kinds of things having to do with raising kids. And I, yeah, in fact, some of the things that you'll find on the website, the workshops are workshops that I've done at churches around how you even start the conversation of sexuality in your church in a healthy way. Yes. And um, just all Which kinds of so stuff. so needed. Yeah. Yes. I love doing that. Good. Tina, thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, I've loved it. Yeah, Every thank you for having me. Every time we we get in these conversations, <laughs> I'm just like, oh my goodness, there's so, oh, so much here. So much to learn and so much wounding to be healed. So, yeah. Thanks for the work you do and thanks for being on the Changing Faith podcast. Thanks for and having me. And for all of our listeners, thank you for being with us. Um, there will be uh, in the description of this episode, I'll have Tina's information there so that you'll be able to access it and uh, continue this process of moving toward understanding what it is like to live as a beloved son, as a beloved daughter, so that we can heal sexual shame. So as always, thank you for being with us. Much love and peace be with you.